Hi, and welcome to Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. Author of Remembered, I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. I'm a writer, host, presenter, academic, and a reader. I love being read to. In each podcast episode, a writer will read to us and answer three questions. We might talk about how they developed the characters, the sense of place, why they wrote the book, something they learned through research, and more. Ultimately, through each episode, I hope to get to know each author a little more, and I hope that you do too. Each episode is about 30 minutes. You'll find the author's bio and a bit about the book below the episode. Thanks for joining in. So, Katie, thank you so much for joining us for Bookable Space Audio Literary Salon. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for including me. Oh, anytime, anytime. So, shall we dive in? Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Wonderful. So, I feel like I'm 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 appropriately nosy, and I just love getting those insider treats to kind of a writer's process and the story and how things happen and why. And so, what was it about the life of Louisa Maud Evans that inspired you to write The Aerialist? Mm, well, that's a good question. Um, it's her absolute courage and knowing that she that she's one of many. So I wanted to tell the story of these Victorian balloon girls who were performers. They, they were actors, acrobats, but they were athletes, too. And they were independent young women who were trying to make a place for themselves in the world and to draw some attention to themselves. So their, their courage and their freedom were really inspiring. I love that. And why balloons? What was it about the, like, ah. <laughs> ah. <laughs> well, it was a bit, um, it's a space where science and art was really um, intersecting. So balloons were being developed as these, these great innovations. The technology had been there for about a hundred years already, and they were trying to figure out what they could do with them. So what was the point of balloons? They knew what they could do, but they used them in this modern world. And the Victorian period, particularly the late Victorian period, was a time of a lot of technological and social change. Mm. Much like today, there is mm. a lot shifting and so lots of experiments going on. And so, yeah, so, so balloons were eye-catching. They could draw a crowd. And where there's a crowd, there's some money. But there are also lots of different ways that they could use them. I love that. So with that in mind, could we have a reading, please? Yeah, I think that this one leads in really well, because it starts things I love about balloons. So this is told in the voice of Laura, who's one of my fictional characters in this book. Things I love about balloons. The fabric first, all strength and readiness. I take the cut gores from the work table and lay them together pin each in place and check the edges, making them ready for the machine. With one hand, I touch and guide the fabric, and with one, I turn the wheel. This is my first work, each stitch mine, small secret holding everything together. And I love the miles of thread I use, thin as hair, heavy to hold, and then the varnish, its sharp, hard smell, the boar bristle brush, and the broad strokes the painter uses, like he's casting out a fishing line, like he's waving to a ship that might now come to shore. I love the room in the factory upstairs, hung round with waiting balloons, 
and mainly women there. The towers of baskets and the shadows they make, the heaviness and lightness of ropes and cotton and silk suspended, all waiting until we need them. So many things. I love the plans we make and the maps, decisions, even arguments and schemes. I love our experiments, the equations, the new ways of making things. I love looking ahead. I do not love the costumes the girls wear, but love my own when I can choose it. A man's suit, a well-cut waistcoat, buttoned close, the warmth of layered wool. I wear these when we try new balloons, when it's just us and no audience, no paying passengers, just me and Ina and Auguste in the basket, working together, talking things through. Sometimes, though, they do make me perform. A crowded fairground and wearing the girls' suits, low-cut, high-cut, stripes, edged in gilt. I hate all that. They paint my face, my lips red, each eyebrow a rising arch. I frown until it's time to perform, and then I smile. Oh, how lovely. How very beautiful. I think that leads oh, thank right. You. You're welcome. I feel like that leads mm-hmm. wonderfully into the next question, which is what sort of research do you do to create this rich world that you've created? And then I'm really curious about the lines between what you can and what you can't imagine, what needs to stay true to the research. Mm-hmm. So when I was building this story, I spent a lot of time reading Victorian newspapers of the time because I wanted to get the crowd's sense. I wanted to know what they knew and when and get those details right. And the newspapers at the time were fascinating because four or five different editions would be coming out a day and the story would be changing and evolving. And so I I went through all of those and was just fascinated by those depictions. But then I needed the more of the atmospheric stuff and more of the hands-on because, um, as you saw in that bit, Laura isn't just an aerialist. She doesn't just fly the balloons. She also makes the balloons. Mm. So I needed to, to know a bit about that process. I uh, needed to learn about that. And for part of that, I did some practical research as well. I managed to find a sewing machine from the period. And I say that as if it was a really hard thing to do. I mean, eBay absolutely <laughs> provided it. I had it within the week. And and that was just magic. It was great. Because did it work? They are, it did. Yeah. Yeah. I got one that had been uh, reconditioned. So everything had been cleaned and greased and oiled. It was a little bit dusty. So I needed to to get my toothpicks in there a little bit. Um but I do know how to sew to begin with, but I sew mm. on a, a modern machine, uh, not a hand crank machine. So that was completely new and different for me. And that really helped me get get a handle, pardon the pun, <laughs> on the experience of these girls learning how to do it. And they're really beautiful machines um, with all the artwork on them. They've got this gold paint on and all sorts of beautiful Victorian swirls. So I was delighted that my publisher managed to reproduce some of that on the, the book itself, which also has gold swirls on it. So are you sewing a balloon in your spare time? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I made Christmas decorations. <laughs> 
just little things. <laughs> See that, that that's really kind because I probably would have if my book was about balloons, I would have made little itty bitty balloons and been like, I'm using these for marketing. And then when people uh, buy a book, I'm like giving them a little balloon to like now I can't sell. You know, I'm, so I, I'm I would taking notes now. <laughs> that's a great idea. You I'll have, have to do something one. like that when the paperback comes out. There you go. As someone who can't sew, I'm going, yeah, it's completely, it's, you know, make little balloons. How hard can it be? <laughs> I'll see you next time with like little like scratches on your fingers. Like it was really hard. Yes, blood everywhere. <laughs> but imagine a story you can tell your readers. It makes it even oh. more special if you can lose mm-hmm. just a little bit of blood while you do it. <laughs> So could Excellent. we could we have another reading, please, before you lose any? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, no paper cuts on this one. <laughs> so this book, it moves through a little bit through time, but definitely through space. Mm-hmm. So we have so the balloon factory is in London, but the the main body happens in Cardiff, where I'm living now. But Laura is an American. And so she starts off in the States. So this bit I'm going to read now, set some of that up. And here we go. Ice fog in New York before we left America. The river frozen. Ferries on the East River locked in and impossible. In the morning, the light came feeble and we couldn't see anything but white. Heading down through the gridded streets. The horse's breath, same as the sky. It gets like this, a woman told us on a corner that might have been nowhere. Cold comes on and gets in the air. Keep a scarf up or your lips will crack. Try and keep the girl warm. Kids freeze fast. She walked away down an invisible street, not even a ghost in the white. And Ma stepped out bold and fast, saying she wanted to see the shore and that we'd walk between Manhattan and Brooklyn, like over a field. The ice was that thick. But when the white streets were all behind us and we got to where the she changed her mind. Can't see anything anyway. No different from anywhere else. A white wall, a white island and feet frozen through to cold white bones. We might have stayed in New York. There was work there that winter and Ma made some money. We had a good room and there was no trouble. Only she kept telling me that we'd left the West because she was certain now, and that meant something. She was ready. She had money saved, so we only had to wait for the spring to come. Then we'd get our steamer tickets and head across the sea. She said it was the right thing to do, that in ten days, only ten days after we left, we'd be in France. Ten days of waves and wind and salt and sailors' whistles, it turned out, but Standing on that deck, Ma put her arm around me tight, and the wind blew our prairie hair out like flags. We turned our backs on America, as dismissively as we knew how. All the sailors whistled like cowboys, but I really mean wagon boys, because they were the ones I met. The horse boys, the travelers, the ones heading west. They came into the store, each with their paw, sunburned, dusty, their hands in their pockets, and standing just the other side of the counter, close. I only saw real cowboys at a distance. They stood around in the street, spitting, silent. Or I heard them fighting at night, making a fuss, singing songs Ma would have preferred I never heard. 
Once she caught me whistling in the store where I was sweeping, and the store wasn't empty. A family of travelers was there buying supplies, and the wagon boy caught my eye. A hot prickle of needles ran up my arms, through my hair, and there was a look in his eye while the sound of my whistle kept going like a sound I was listening to, like a song that came from elsewhere. Ma pinched my arm and took my broom, marched me to the back. What do you think you're doing? I didn't know. And she said she never wanted to hear that again. And she better never catch me flirting like that, never. That night, she made me sit long at my sewing, even though it was just doll's clothes. And I had to stitch an extra line of buttonholes for practice. She sat in silence, not even watching my stitches, just watching the fire. And when I'd finished, she didn't look at it. And I put my work away. And then she told me I needed to understand. Wagon boys were only ever passing through, and their hands were filthy from collecting buffalo chips to burn in their stinking campfires. And what did I want with all that when something so much better was coming our way? You know, if we could go back to the research, what were some of those lines that you couldn't cross between mm-hmm. what really happened and what you imagined happened? Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, there's some characters in my story that are completely fictional. And then there's some that are that were real people. And where I had accounts of the real people, I wanted to really honor that. Mm. So I didn't want to to break character for them. I wanted to have um, lines that I know that they spoke. Um, or if I found things that didn't fit within the timeline of the story, but that showed their character differently, I wanted to reflect that in it. So when I was sort of figuring out how to write historical fiction, I read various other writers uh, writing about it um, to find out what rules they set themselves. Mm-hmm. And um, I found a bit by Margaret Atwood when she was writing Alias Grace. And she said that she would make up any detail as long as there was a gap in the historical record. Okay. If she could find the, the truth, then she couldn't change it. So she couldn't change the weather. She couldn't change the day of the week but she could change anything that she couldn't find. You just have to actually look. But then with the the fictional characters, what I wanted to do with them was find the space in the story where maybe there'd be a missing day or a missing half day within the historical record and think what could have happened to somebody there that will shed light on the story that I'm telling. Mm. Um, sort of enlarging the themes and giving the characters a bit more space to breathe within that. So how can I use fiction to, to, to prop up the fact? Oh, no, that sounds really useful. Can you tell us about something that you may have found out that was really interesting, but that did not make its way into the novel? Mm-hmm. There are so many of these <laughs> balloon girls, and I wanted to include so many of them, but just didn't didn't have the space. So one character that is included, but not really fleshed out, is Alma Beaumont, who is another one of these performers. And she, oh, she was amazing. So as well as being up in these um, hot air balloons and jumping from parachutes, she also did water walking. Which, <laughs> it's bizarre. So she she made these shoes with huge, thick cork on the bottom. 
And then she figured out how to walk on the surface of a lake wearing these and not just walk, but also dance and perform, you know, be a good show. Um, But I just didn't have space to include that. But but yeah, it was a great story. (laughs) I wish that there was a film evidence of that. Fascinating. So are like, are you what are you gonna do with that? What like what, what ah. happens to those good like it's I don't know, it just sounds so incredible. Yeah. Yeah, there were so many of these great performing details. And well, and, and children of some of these balloon artists who who went up as mere babes in arms in, in hot air balloons. So all those little bits and pieces, they make for good stories when I'm sharing the book. So that's one thing I can do with it. I'm not really sure what else. They do feed my understanding of the characters mm. and they do build my curiosity, but I'm not certain when I'm going to be able to return to them. Yeah, I hope that something brings you back to them, especially mm. um, it just feels like a community of people that we don't hear about and that many of us have never heard about before and or even imagined about or, you know, known this was a possibility walking on water. Like, who, yeah. like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's so <laughs> biblical. Yeah. Um, and there's just so many of these hidden stories out there. Mm. I was at uh, a bookshop in Bristol chatting with a bookseller and describing some of this. And she was saying it's they're extreme athletes. Like this is extreme mm. sports we're talking about. And it's not at all what we think of as a stereotype of Victorian performers. Mm. I mean, we're not talking ankle length skirts and, and cover you up corsets. These are, are people who are showing some leg and mm. were incredibly daring and doing really risky and vibrant and exciting things. And I love that it seems like there's some autonomy to it. So you learn these these skills, this craft, and then you you sell it or you, you know, you're out there performing and making a living from it and making a name and kind of controlling your legacy or your your mm. destiny for a bit. And I just think like how wonderful is that? And it's not something that I guess we typically think about of for Victorian women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, they still did have limits. So mm. there were still controlling men trying to to make the profit from them. Mm. They did need to be careful with how they managed themselves. And so Alma Beaumont, who I was telling you about, was working for... So my, my two main aerialists in this book are Auguste Gaudran and his wife, Ina. Okay. And so Alma Beaumont was working for Auguste. And she retired in her early 20s, not because she'd made enough money to do so, but because she wanted out from under his thumb. But in order then to to have some autonomy, well, she married somebody um, and then he was managing her show. So they are still working within the the, the confines, but probably doing a lot more than we'd expect. Yeah. Wow. So with that in mind, could we have a final reading, please? Mm, Yeah. Well, I want to I want to give you the opening of the book. Okay. thank you. So this is how the story starts. And up. The earth fell away and she looked down into the opening space beneath her, then quickly up again for courage. Overhead, the rope spread like tree branches and the belly of the balloon blocked the sky. Her hands gripped the ropes tightly and she looked down again to the vanishing grass, the surge of people left behind, all their voices. Then the castle tower on its hill with its bright ring of water. All the trees looked soft from above. Not yet afraid. Good, she thought. So it was a good day for flight. The light above the city was still bright, 
but the air felt cool and the evening close, and she kept rising. She concentrated. Balance, patience, persistence, strength. The parachute's lines were fast and ready, the clips in place, the webbing secure. Not yet time to think of the valve and the right moment to release. For now, that strong west wind was carrying her out into the open, away from the city, and all would be well. It was simply a matter of well-timed science. She started counting churches. They were easy to see from above and easy to navigate by. Did the builders think of that? How their towers might be useful from up above? Of course they did. Isn't that the point of church towers? Getting God's attention when he looked down from on high? Maybe. She'd climbed a church tower once. Where was that? Bristol? No, somewhere in Cornwall, away from the hills. Built of granite, grey and heavy, and every surface carved and decorated like sailors' arms, with flowers, animals, and patterns every which way. There were a lot of stairs, and she thought she'd be dizzy when she reached the top because it looked so high from the churchyard. When she got there, it wasn't like that at all. She was just above the roofs, their slates close beneath her like paved streets, and the sky above unfinished, unthreatening. Looking out to the horizon, she saw gentle fields beyond the town, lifting to a ridge of trees silhouetted in the distance. And if she stepped out, if she could, up and over the tower's stone wall, she could walk there quickly, she thought, long strides right over everything, until she reached the edge of the sky. The wind teased her hair loose around her face, and it tickled, but she couldn't brush it away. This wasn't the moment to let go her grasp. She tried to focus and look down on the city. So many people there. She could see them crowded in the streets, moving about, looking up, watching her. What a show, but she shouldn't be distracted by them. She needed to focus, remember the map, the penciled arrows, and that cross out on the moor. She wished she had that bit of paper now just to check and to be sure. Only no point in wishing. What good would that do? There was no going back and very little steering. She held the ropes tighter. Now, too many churches below, and she'd lost track. The wind was strengthening, the city slipping away below and her shoulders ached, but she told herself it was all right. She was safe. It was a sturdy system, well-made with every modern innovation, and her harness was secure. Still, the wind slipped inside her clothes, like fingers, and she shivered. Fear started. The prickle. The clench. There it was. And maybe she'd been expecting it all along expecting it like church towers expect God. Now she needed to rise above it and let the fear stay below. It could be the field she left behind, the city she was flying over. It could sink away and she could rise up higher, show them all. Who knows if anyone down below could see her clearly. For all the brightness of her careful costume, She in the balloon may just have been a distant smudge against the evening sky, and soon enough the crowds would find some closer distraction, 
or simply walk away, off down the streets, back towards their houses, their own filled lives. They'd forget this latest spectacle. And that hardly mattered now. With the quick wind behind her and her eyes fixed on the horizon, she let go of the rope with one hand. The skin on her palm was unexpectedly cool and light, and she smiled, threw up her arm, and waved to whoever might still be watching. Katie, thank you so much for joining us today for the readings. It's been such a pleasure to hear you read and to hear about the process of making the aerialists come to life. Well, thank you for letting me share. It's, it's been My a delight. Pleasure. Before you go, where can we buy the book? Well, it's in all good bookstores, um, so you can pick your favorite. But my local favorite does deliver nationally within Britain, and it's called Griffin Books in Panarth. And I can put that in the show notes for you if you like. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for joining us and for such a wonderful adventure that you took us on today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Bookable Space. If you don't already have the book and want to read more, Buy it, borrow it from your local library, read it, and if you enjoy it, review it if you haven't already. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon with your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. Follow me on Twitter at YBattlefelton, on Instagram on why I write Battlefelton for pictures, interview insights, and more.